Show Drama. This is Katie Gordon. And this is Leonardo Bovadilla, Rhymes with Casadilla. <laughs> How are you doing, Leo? Doing great, Katie. How's it going over there? I am very excited about today's guest, who I will let you introduce because you are the one who linked us up for this episode. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Um, we are very lucky to have uh, Dr. Hal Herzog, who is a professor emeritus at Western Carolina University, <coughs> Go Catamounts. And uh, he is a world, uh, world-renowned world anthropologist and very lucky to have him because he actually, I actually knew him when I was at Western Carolina. We psychodrama, the podcast does not have that much juice yet that we can get world-renowned people unless we have personal connections. So thank <laughs> you so you much. Mean, for I'm, I'm not getting paid for this? <laughs> I'm not getting paid? The check is on the mail. <laughs> okay, we're good to go. Okay, keep talking. It should be it should be, com- it should be from the Internal Revenue Service on the amount of like anywhere between $250 and $1,200. Sounds good. Depending okay. on the size of your I'm family. In. <laughs> and as I was saying, yeah, he's a world-renowned anthropologist, and he's uh, currently emeritus, but he keeps um, a, a blog on Psychology Today, which is very interesting, super readable, and fascinating, uh, called uh, Animals and Us. Is that correct? Yeah, Animals and Us. And we'll be putting a link to it uh, in our show notes as well. So we're very excited uh, about the show, and without further ado... Um, I thought it would be good. Maybe we can start with Hal letting us know a little bit about what is exactly anthrozoology, because I don't think a lot of people might be familiar or know what the term is. Yeah, anthrozoology is a is a new field that really dates back really about three decades, about 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the study of human animal relationships. And it it's part of its psychology, part of its sociology, part of its anthropology. Uh, but we have lots of pe- the people that are, consider themselves anthozoologists come from lots of different areas of science and social sciences. And um, basically what we're all interested, though, what we have in common is that we're absolutely fascinated with the relationships that people have with other species, which would include mm-hmm. things like our attitudes um, uh, and, and the entire range of uh, how we deal with ethical issues associated with uh, the other species that we share the world with. Yeah, and and, and you are a psychologist, as you say, you're a psychologist by training. Um, do you mind saying a little bit about how you got into it from psychology? What 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 drew you to anthrozoology? Well, I've well I've always been interested in animals, and my PhD is actually in animal behavior. And mm-hmm. uh, my uh, doctoral dissertation started out being on the behavior of of chickens, baby chicks. And I was interested in strain differences, you know, whether mm. a barnyard chicken is different than a meat chicken or a meat chicken different than an egg-laying chicken and, and things like how they handled stress and stuff like that. And the, but some of my neighbors, it turns out, were cockfighters. I was living in rural western North Carolina. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, you know, these cockfighters, why not, why not look at cockfighter baby chicks? And so I got some of these guys to give me some, some baby chicks. And they also asked me to go to rooster fight with them. And at first I said, no, I'd never do that. And then I started thinking about it. I said, wait a minute, that might be sort of interesting from a psychological, anthropological mm-hmm. perspective. And I went and I got hooked on it immediately. Uh, Were I, cockfights I, legal at the time? No, of course not. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, wouldn't have been nearly, it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. <laughs> but some of, my, some of my pals that I went with were cops. In fact, one of them was a detective. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> it says I, that tells so you a I, lot about Western Carolina. Uh, Western uh, Carolina absolutely. Um, so I so I wound up I wound up going initially to look at the behavior of chickens, and then I got really more interested in the in the culture about 
the, the most interesting thing about cockfighters I found was that was that how not how not very interesting they were. That is to say, they were perfectly normal people in every in every way. They had families. They had, they went to church on Sunday. They um, um, they had you know they had they had jobs. One was a pharmacist. A couple were cops. Um, one truck drivers, farmers. You know, all kind of people. And they and they really loved these roosters, you know, that they were taking to rooster fights and then fighting to the death on on Saturday night. And so I began to be interested in the psychology of their moral worlds. And that's what really sort of drew me into this field. And uh, at that time, uh, I was working at Western Carolina University or somewhat time after after that. And uh, I was I had a lab and I was studying the personality development in snakes. That was my research area. And at some point, I thought, you know, I, I'm getting bored with this snake stuff. Um, and I closed my lab down and I started studying human-animal interactions, for, you know, full time. And I, I went on to not, study. For, what, go ahead. The snakes were not bombastic enough. <laughs> they were. They were just. I got tired of counting the number of times they'd bite my hand. That was. That was the. Uh, that was my personality test. It was. It was very empirical. I had NSF money. I was. I was. You know. I was, I was kidding. I was paying for your your uh, your tax dollar. Well, was tax paying for my How many times you got bit, bit by a snake? Yeah. And so that's that's so interesting. You mentioned the um, the personalities of the um of the of the uh, cockfighters because um and it's. Because part of the reason we're very excited to have you is because this is a second, a sequel to our first episode on the Tiger King, which, as you know, has kind of taken America by storm. And one of the things that we talked about in the first episode was that drew us, or I think draw draw a lot of people to the the show, is because the personalities of the characters of Joe uh, and Carol and the Bagwam are it's just enormous. They're they're the opposite of that. They're the opposite of very normal or average. And then we got extra excited when we find out that you actually had been to Doc Antle's uh, farm. So what what what's uh, I know you've seen the, the the series. What's your opinion on the Tiger King and what you know? What, how was your whole background on the Bagwan and the, the the story? What's your connection to that? Well, well, I guess my fascination with the Tiger King was the the, the movie, the HBO series, was probably the same as most people's, which are the fascination with these people that were just so whacked out weird and um they but but, you know you're you're just left scratching your head like where are these people coming from in 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 so many ways um the the show in a way i wouldn't say it was a disappointment to me because i uh i enjoyed it uh unlike a lot of people my wife wouldn't watch it she watched 10 minutes and she wouldn't watch any any more but but i found it uh I, i found the characters fascinating um, basically, for the same reason that you study sociopaths, you know, that these, <laughs> a bunch of messed out sociopaths on there, and you know, and then of course there's things like you know murder in the background, and who knows what really happened, and mm-hmm. it's it's not really about what I really study with my study human animal interactions, which is moral ambiguity. There wasn't a whole lot of moral ambiguity in that in that in, in that show. Um, you know, what they were doing to those tigers was bad, and those people were uh, bad, albeit, albeit, albeit interesting. Um, but I did get, I did know one of the main characters, uh, Doc Anthos, and uh, the, the 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 situation was the BBC, British Broadcasting Company, was doing a, a series on what are called animal odd couples. These are animals of different species that fall in love with each other. A classic example would be Coco's kitten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Coco is a sign language trained gorilla that had a had a pet cat. And then there's you see lots of things. There's a whole there's a whole 
there's books written on these animal animal odd couples and and i had been on record and had written some articles including in my book that humans are the only animals to keep pets and so the bbc knew had seen uh, uh some ads and had seen some uh youtube clips on uh this hound that had made friends with an orangutan and um, it was at this place in Myrtle Beach. And I didn't know anything about it. And they wanted, they wanted me to go check it out with them. So they, I went down with the film crew and spent two days uh-huh. at, this, at this Doc Anthill's private private thing. And we saw the tigers and, and uh, we saw the chimps. And uh, yeah, I got a picture of me holding this, ba- this baby chimp. And I'll tell you, there's, there's, nothing, <laughs> there's nothing as great as having, having a, a little kid chimp. see me and they don't like me. You know, they run the other way and scream. This <laughs> chimp took one look at me and just made a beeline at me and jumped in my arms. <laughs> melted <laughs> my heart melted it's uh, so so you can see then how 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 doc's point is like you know there's a there's a special power about having these animals and people's attraction to them that really is what keeps them there absolutely and the the place was was very creepy and was accurately portrayed in the tiger king it does have this weird he is like this weird guru and it does have a cult-like thing and most of the keepers are in fact uh you know very attractive blonde haired young women that just happen to you know also like to take care of tigers and i think when i went there you had to pay 350 dollars for a half a day wow <laughs> no idea yeah yeah that and there were and there were, and there were no signs to get in except some keep out signs yeah. And I remember scratching my head when we were driving in there thinking, like, what kind of place is it? And then it turns out that uh, that uh, and Bibi Heasy handled this really well is that basically he's a he's an animal trainer. And yeah. this thing about this this hound falling in love with this orangutan and they became just fast friends. They did seem to be friends. But in fact, they were trained to be friends. So that's my argument. My argument is that humans are the only animals to really keep pets. And yeah. uh, what we had in there was was yet another example of animals that fall in love with another species, which they're capable of doing, but only seem to do it with human intervention. So that's really and I will say, you mentioned your book and I, well, I'm going to go ahead and give that a, a plug as well. And it's a fascinating book. I would highly recommend it's called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. And it's a great cover. It has a puppy, um, a pig. And a cockroach, a cockroach. No, you had to no, know you wanted a cockroach, a cockroach originally, but they went for the rat. Rat, yeah. <laughs> yeah because the, the editors of their cockroach would be too, too gross. Right. But it's a great book. Um, and uh, so highly recommended. And we can talk more about that. But I, I think it's, you mentioned uh, the BBC, you went there with BBC looking for this kind of human animal interactions uh, or animals, whether animals keep yeah. pets. <laughs> and, and I, We'll we'll link uh, the BBC if we uh, the 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 liberal where you appear, uh, but you mentioned in the um, in the in that particular clip that the one there was one exception to that rule that you you don't think that there exists an animal that keeps pe- uh, any animals that keep pets other species as pets, but you mentioned one exception. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, about it and uh, what yeah. you think about that? Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was uh, this was a case that was that primatologists in Brazil discovered, and it was a capuchin, a, a, a troop of capuchin monkeys, which mm-hmm. apparently adopted a baby marmoset. Capuchins are amongst the smartest of New World monkeys. They have a large brain. They use tools and stuff like that, and they they adopted this baby marmoset, which is also a primate but a much smaller one, and they lived with it and they kept it for 14 months before it disappeared. And they fed it. They uh, they protected it. They played with it. They treated it just like it was one of their ones. They treated it just like a, just like a pet. 
And to me, that's the exception that proves the rule. And one of the things that got me interested in this was every now and then a chimpanzee, I would see a, 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 an article where it says chimpanzee keeps pets. And I would, I would track the article down. I've done that one three or four times. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the chimpanzee would find like a little uh, bush baby or something like that, you know, a small <laughs> antelope or a small thing. And, I hate and where this like, is going. Like, yeah, you do. And, and would play with it for uh, like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And then it would smash its head against a rock. <laughs> oh, my and, God. And then, and then it would throw it around like a football. And then the only thing that was pet-like about it was that they wouldn't eat it. Huh. And, and every case of chimpanzees, they 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 kill them very quickly. It does not end out well. And so to me, the case of Fortunata proves that uh, primates, other primates could keep pets if they wanted to, but they don't want to. Yeah, now, I have right. to say, since that came out just in the last year, there's been two other cases of that, huh. of, of, of this interspecies relationships in the wild. One involved a, a female dolphin that adopted a, a whale, a small baby whale of a, of a small whale hmm. species. I think it's called a bubble-headed like a, whale. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a bubble-headed whale. And she was lactating. She would even feed it. And, it, and again, they, they hung out together for quite a long time. And then the other one was very recent. It just happened in the last month or so. And it was a lion, mm-hmm. uh, an Asian lion that adopted a leopard cup in the Gur mm-hmm. Forest in India. And wow. again, this relationship lasted a month or so. And so in those cases, because you mentioned those are kind of like, it could be pets, but it, it seemed to me, I wonder if it may be more like pseudo child, like so a pseudo adoption because they can confuse it. So like a marmoset is close enough to a baby cappuccin that they took it like that. And a, a small a baby feline is close enough uh, phylogenetically, I guess, so to a baby lion that they would, they would be able to feed it. So I don't know if it's, it's hard, obviously impossible to tell. Oh but, uh, wait, wait, wait let's hold I mean? this now, Leo. You're you're showing your 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 insight as a psychologist. However, <laughs> when you ask humans, do you consider your pets a member of your family? Guess uh, how many people say yes right now? Oh, good question. I'm guess gonna how guess. Many, guess how many people tell me that my pets my 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 my, my pets are my children? I'm gonna uh, low ball low ball. That happens all the time. I'll go up seventy percent. <laughs> yes, higher. And guess guess what part of guess what part of women's brains light up when they look at pictures of puppies and they look at pictures of babies? It's gonna be um. Uh, let me see. Not. Let's just let's just say it's the same part. <laughs> <laughs> the and I'm like, uh, what's the part of that? <laughs> it's, 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 it's the same, same part. part. So, so it's, we, it's, it's the it's the part that squirts out dopamine. You know, yeah, the, uh-huh. the feel good the feel good neurotransmitter. And I love oxytocin being released in the in, exactly. in the mix. So, so, have- so it's a very so so I think you're you're raising a good point. Yeah. Um. Huh. There is this bleeding over in pet keeping between, uh, you know, how much of it is 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 glomming onto our parental instincts. I think a lot of it yeah. is. Was that was that seventy percent close to accurate, or how many would say that their their that, pets are part of their family? That's a very good question, and that's the low end. The the okay. the, the the surveys are all over on that one, and they usually go between seventy percent as the low end, and then ninety to ninety five as the high end. So. But it's it's way more than half. Now, by the way, if you go to uh, uh, India, you will not find that to be the case. So there's a huge cultural yeah. influence in that. Absolutely. That's the part that's really interesting as well is the the um the wide cultural variance between you know the animals that and currently our uh, our current pandemic I guess there's a lot of um pin, finger pointing and blaming and without going too much on that um uh, that little uh wormhole 
but the idea that you know things like bats are going to be food for some for some cultures but not others or pangolins uh it's that's really kind of interesting for uh for westerners that kind of just recoil at the idea of eating a dog um but other cultures do not um well let's talk about eating let's talk about eating dog for a minute let's let's Um, yeah why not and um um we haven't received any hate mail (laughs) my dog just left the room after (laughs) well well, katie 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 would you eat your dog no but i'm vegetarian so i don't eat any meat well that doesn't count you're no fun at all (laughs) i'm not okay so there's so there's two by the way jonathan height one of the great psychologists actually uh who studies disgusts um, one of his scenarios that he asks people is uh, the scenario goes something like this. Um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith's uh, dog was hit by a car in front of their house. Um, Mr. Smith's and killed. And Mr. Smith said, honey, I heard dog meat was really good. They eat it in Korean China. And uh, I'd like to have the dog tonight. And uh, the question is, is he doing anything wrong by eating his dog? Is it okay to eat the family dog if it's already dead? And from a strictly logical point of view, the dog's already dead. There's no suffering involved. There's nothing wrong with it. But yet nearly everybody recoils from that idea. Right. Yeah. Katie, what do you, what about in that scenario? Go ahead. Go, go on record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I do, I do think I'm one of the people who would be screened out of the study just because I don't eat any animals. That's, so that's, that's true. And I and so maybe Leo, you you Leo, you have a a broad appetite. You have traveled all over, and <laughs> yes, all kinds yeah, of things. So why don't true. you answer the question? I have eaten those. <laughs> you know what? It makes me think about, uh, especially living in the South for a long time, is that people hit a deer. I mean, that happens all the time, and it's like jackpot. You just hit a deer. Come on, let <laughs> no right? Like you just now have dinner, and. People, we make this different, and you, you have come. This is probably a better question for you. But at what point does a cute baby Bambi deer, which people in the South also kind of equate with, like, oh, that's cute, and and some people kind of keep as pets, but at some point that crosses the line from cute and pet to venison and meal. Yes. And I don't know why Westerners, we we you know we, you know why we still, I guess it's an emotional attachment from early on that we just have them we have dogs in that category that shall never cross into food versus uh, some animals that kind of seem to be more fluid in which category they belong like chickens so people keep pet chickens but they're also broilers well that, that thing, that's a very interesting question obviously it boils down to culture and, and actually there's two reasons that dogs are not eaten in different cultures mm. and in our culture not they're not eaten because they're considered increasingly considered we have this humanization thing going on it's like they're yeah. members of your family so eating it would be would be akin to cannibalism however huh. dogs are also not eaten in places like like india and in saudi arabia and the reason they're not eaten eaten there isn't because people love them it's, it's because people think they're disgusting right and, and, and the quran and in, in some branches of uh, of islam and and uh, in, in hinduism as well dogs are considered to be uh you know uh, absolute, absolute vermin. Right. And so people would not, it would be, they would be disgusted by eating a dog, but not for the same reasons that uh, I might be, or Katie might be uh, disgusted by eating a dog. They're even, even below, right. Right. So far more yeah. disgusting, like eating a cockroach, even right. though it places something good. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I will say this, even though I'm, even though I don't, I don't eat meat, I am, I'm actually not disgusted that other people do. And like, I live in a rural area and there's lots of hunting and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that doesn't bother me, but yeah. you're right. There is an attachment, especially my, I've only had my dog for three weeks, but I think in that <laughs> short time they do, especially when there's like, you know, people are socially distancing and spending a lot of time at home with their animals. Right. There is something that it would be hard not to, even if it's not humanized, but there's a connection. And so other people thinking of other people eating dogs, even if I don't want to be judgmental, there's kind of like a gut response of that Absolutely. being horrible. Cause I think of my dog. Uh, that's, 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 that's absolutely right. And again, this shows the this shows the importance importance of culture. I, uh, there was, I recently ran across uh, an old paper written by, I think, a Swedish anthropologist, and he mapped dog eating in parts of Africa, hmm. and which was quite widespread. But there were places where dogs were eaten and dogs were not eaten that were right next to each other. So you would have that's you, know, so you would have you would have these. Yeah, it was amazing that like. I, you know, it was like if the dogs were eaten in Northern Africa, I would have said, OK, but not Southern Africa. But it wasn't like that at all. It was just like these little little pockets of different different tribal cultures. And some dogs were some in some cases eating dog was seen as disgusting and the other one not at all. Yeah, that's it maybe. I mean, it does make you makes me wonder about a lot uh, what might be coming of the remote events in a cult in a in a culture's history Absolutely. that kind of diverged from them. So like you can think of things like you know a, a pandemic or an epidemic or a particularly bad dog in one culture that you know bit a chief and the chief is like, look, hey, those things are now going to be eaten all the time. And another chief in another culture right next to you, like, oh, I love my dog. They must be revered. And that, that remains in the culture, even though they're. No, I, I think culture. I think I, I think you're absolutely right. And I and I, <laughs> I I am more and more thinking you're right on this because I, uh, I sort of I, come I, to the same conclusion. I, 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 think, I think I think <laughs> I think a lot of our interactions with the animals and our attitudes or animal, animals are almost completely arbitrary. That even when I was writing my book, I was I was wanting to give evolutionary, you know, biological evolutionary explanations to things. And because of my research in more recent years, I'm increasingly thinking that a lot of uh, these attitudes that we hold so dear are basically cultural uh, accidents, essentially. Um, They they evolve via they're, they're memes. That run through a culture for no for no apparent reason, oftentimes. And that we can talk about this later. But that also, I would I argue that that's also true of pet keeping generally. And this is an idea which is not widely accepted by my colleagues, by the way. Which one? That that pets are like a meme. Yes, my idea that pets are that pets are essentially a meme that have no little or no uh, cultural function or psychological so, function. Let me ask you more that's, about that's that. Not a widely, that's not I a don't widely like accepted idea. So let me see. Maybe I can get you to expand a little bit on it because I, I do like the idea of the kind of the evolutionary uh, idea that I was talking to Katie briefly before. And I was thinking about, about it the other way, that maybe we are being the vessels of our pets. Rather, we're not keeping them. They're keeping us. Yeah. And their, and their evolutionary strategy has been to make us – work for them and they're very successful yes. parasites yes. Uh, so I'm curious is whether that but are you saying that that basically it's a more of a glitch that we have and we're just kind of keeping them and it could be just because they're using us or okay no, I, I think both of those can be true I, th- I think mm. both of those ideas can be true uh, let's 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 keep the idea of a glitch in for for a few minutes put put it sure. on the back the back burner let's take a look at the parasite theory uh, this parasite theory was originally developed by John Archer um, and jo- what John Archer compared, uh, he, he looks at uh, 
pets essentially as uh, pet keeping essentially as uh, a form of what are, what's called nest parasitism in uh-huh. mythology. And what nest parasitism is, it's a it's a it's it's a reproductive strategy found in some birds, which they cheat by by laying their eggs in the birds in the nest of a different species. That's right. And then they flee and they never have anything to do with these nestlings. And the other bird is fooled by this. All it right. knows is that there's eggs there. They hatch it. When the eggs hatch out, they feed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so and they raise it and they and they're and they're producing you know they're furthering the the their not their own genes but the cuckoo's genes this in the united states this happened to the in the brown-headed cowbird well guess what happened to me guess my, my cat my, my cat tilly <laughs> who uh-huh. is presently eating believe it or not um um what's this to, oh lump crab which i bought <laughs> Which I brought by accident <laughs> instead of tuna fish, you know. So she's eating really good. So so I come home. We don't we we didn't have a pet. We had dogs, and our dog had died. And I come home one day, and my wife is there. Mary Jean's there, you know her, and she's got this funny look on her face. And I think, well, that's a weird look. What is that about? And 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 I look down, and there's this little black kitten, you know, on the porch, going meow meow meow, looking up at her. And the next thing you know, we were suckered into taking her in and we've been we've been feeding her and taking care of her and giving her lump crab meat <laughs> ever since. During a pandemic, no less. However, like a queen. however, humans have in sort of at least in the United States, we have sort of screwed up. This as a reproductive strategy because we have removed her ability to produce, produce eggs. So the um, so the female cat that laid her in the, our nest thinking she was going to uh, pass her genes down was uh, was that that turned out to be a loser strategy because of spay and neuter <laughs> kind of put a put a bit of a short circuit in it, it. it a short circuit exactly <laughs> and so okay. go ahead oh, go ahead no because i was gonna say that I, I think that uh, i you brought you mentioned that uh, a lot of people kind of uh, you're kind of in the minority of this opinion and as to whether uh, the pets are a meme uh, or their evolutionary value. Um, and so are you are you are you kind of more of like I consider like a Grinch on the on this on the anthrozoology pe- uh, field or or is this kind of more the standard uh, of the anthrozoology? I've, 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 been, ca- I've been called the uh, the official anthrozoology curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I get emails sometimes. Hal, you're the uh, you're the official curmudgeon. What do you think of this study? <laughs> do you do you get this is this kind of ties a little bit too because you mentioned earlier like you know the the people who kind of did the cockfighting there were no difference they're kind of pretty average. And joking, I, I I've always thought that people who are very much into felines and big animals, they tend to be a little bit kooky. And people who are really into animal brains, I'm like oh, okay, a little bit cookie and joe joe um joe exotic and the and the tiger king um kind of fulfills a little bit of that that uh, hypothesis do you get more hate mail from animal from dog or cat or a particular type of people when you put uh, kind of these grinchy articles about pets not being good for longevity or on any of that you know it's just really surprising um my my colleagues have been incredibly supportive of me, you know, like they they sort of like having somebody out there to sort of to do what I do. And um, so I, 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 I don't get much hate mail. That's I get cool. a, I get a, a lot of of 
uh, I get a lot of mail from people that want me to answer questions I cannot answer. For example, they want to know about dog behavior and things like that. Mm. And then I get a lot of I get a lot of mail, and some of it's very sad, um, from people who are dealing with uh, difficult moral issues mm. or difficult uh, relationship issues. You know, for example, uh, I got an email recently. Um, it was very sad about a woman whose marriage was breaking up uh, because her husband had become a vegan. And, um, and it's, he had just almost converted overnight hmm. and, um, and she was trying, and she was trying to, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, accommodate him and he was getting, uh, it was getting weirder and weirder. And some one point he said, like, you know, whenever I kiss you, I feel like I'm, you know, kissing a, de- a dead steak or you know, a hunk of steak or something like that. Oh boy. And, um, she wouldn't be tell her what to do. It's like, no, I'm not. You need to talk to my friend Leo. He's a clinical psychologist. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that that actually ties to the next. I feel like I'm talking a lot, Katie. So please jump in at any moment. Uh, I but, did, well, I did have one question that ooh, I right. I wanted to ask in talking about how we were talking about how much how much we can affection that people can feel towards animals, and we got a really interesting question on Twitter by Et Perez Rojas, who wants to know, do animals really love us back, or is it mostly yeah. just associating us with resources? Yeah, see, that's another area where I get a lot of questions, and I'm not really an expert on that. I'm not really an expert on dogs. I'm not really an expert on cats. However, I am going to be able to answer this question in this particular mm-hmm. case. Um in that one of my uh one of my one of my colleagues, one of my fellow researchers, uh, Clive Wynn, who uh, recently writ, wrote a book uh, called Dog is Love. I'm not, I'm not enthusiastic mm-hmm. about the title, but, <laughs> but Clive yeah, is a great, a great researcher. Um, he started out as a, as a uh, strict behaviorist and did not believe that animals had any emotions at all. And he was a strict Skinnerian behaviorist. And he wound up getting a dog, and uh, he was actually studying dog behaviors at the time, but was still agnostic at best on their emotions. Um, he fell in love with this little dog and he began doing these experiments, very clever experiments to find, to answer your question, to answer that question. Do dogs love us? Um, his answer is yes, they do. And they they have evolved. They have, they have, they had, he argues that dogs have evolved, um, really in the last 15 to 20,000 years, uh, to hang out with humans and and they cast their lot with humans in a way that no other species has. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting moral implications to that, by the way, as well. Do you mind, like, what can you give like a couple, one or two moral implications regarding yeah, I, the I can give you, I can give you yeah. what I think the biggest one is. Yeah. And uh, I think the biggest one is that um, he argues that um, it's really immoral to leave dogs alone for long periods of time. Mm. Mm. And he he makes the case. I'm sure the uh, a, the uh, AKC is not going to do the ask. But he says, if you can't, if your dog has to stay at home for more than six hours a day by itself, you shouldn't have a dog. You have just to me. Amped. That's pretty amazing because I've certainly been guilty of that when we had dogs, you know. And uh, Katie, I, the I, pressure I, is I, on I with Maddie. Right. <laughs> Katie, how you doing? Can you can you do you um can you leave your dog alone for six hours? You know, we since we've only had her for three weeks and it's been pretty much um, staying at home all that time, she hasn't been alone at all. So I think it's going to be a rough adjustment. But my initial plan was that I work pretty close to home, that I would come home and at least visit during lunch. So it would probably be four hours. Max that's exactly that's exactly me. what Clive does now. And he what he does is he goes home for lunch 
because of this dog. And I had never thought about I, I by the way, I would I would highly recommend his book. Uh, yeah, I, it's, one, it's one of the it's a great combination of of research and how how researchers get their ideas and uh, how they test their ideas. And he talks about experiments that failed and the ideas that were right and the ideas that were wrong and how he's changed his mind. It's yeah. just a, it's just a wonderful book. So the book is Dog is Love. And it, but actually, that it's makes fun. me think a lot about um, this idea what I've mentioned earlier that I be, people kind of like to extol the virtues of animals and the, all the riches that they bring to their lives. But to me, like having to be going back every four hours and just tending to this animal for a ton of money to just give him food, uh, make sure that they're going to the vet, nothing happens to him. It's like a pain in the ass, Nick. Uh, and I don't know if we can say that. Um, but <laughs> oh, podcast. Just, yeah, you can. <laughs> it's like I can yeah. say anything, right? Anything say, goes. Anything goes. And and, <laughs> and I mean anything, Leo, really. Just say it all. <laughs> just let it go. Let it really kind of as much hate as we can. It's consequence free. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, what it brings me, what it, it makes me think about how much of a pain in the butt there. And here in the podcast, we try to bring psychological science uh, findings as much as we can. And when people talk about keeping pets and especially animals as therapists, that I think that I, I wasn't too convinced about that idea. And after reading your book and following your um, your blog, I really have become a staunch anti-animal uh, ther- animal assisted therapy person in my department, which is terrible because there's two people who are really into it. Oh, no. And I'm always just going back and forth on it uh, in a very, you know, in a very kind of fun collegial way. But I, I, I wonder if you, because I'm, I'm, I'm only seeing this negative. So I'm, I'm only seeing, so this, this woman who is now distressed that her husband, you know, cannot kiss him anymore. Uh, you have to spend all this time and energy and resources on the, on the, on the animals. And so I really am having a hard time wrapping my mind that, in fact, not only uh, are they uh, not a burden, but they're also beneficial in some way, therapeutic or otherwise. So can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, what the data on, on that area has to say? Sure. Um, let me just say first that um, this is not an area that I was really very interested in for most of my career. Mm-hmm. And um, there, you know, I would my research on human animal interactions was basically uh, focused on uh, ethical issues and attitudes and things like gender differences and how people think about animals and things like that. But in writing my book, I, I, I had to include a chapter on on pets. And so and a lot of my friends were people that were doing or are doing research on uh, the, the positive impact of pets on people and on animal assisted therapy. And I've you know, been going to meetings for years and hearing talks about this for years. And I thought, hey, hey this is great. It's, it's all good. Um, and then when I was writing my chapter, I actually took a deep dive into the research and I was surprised at what I found. Now, let's talk. Let's. Is it okay if we just talk first about the impact of, of pets, pets on people? Right yeah, that's now? great. Okay. Yeah, hey, let's just talk about, you know, the, the pet industry uh, claims and puts millions into advertising the idea that getting a pet will make you physically healthier and uh, and psychologically better off, you improve your right. psychological well-being. In fact, they claim that uh, pets save Americans $12 billion a year on medical care costs. Hmm. And the the fact is that um, I believe that this is uh, not true. And and Hmm. this is my view on what the science says. When I was writing this chapter, uh, what I did was I collected all the papers I could on the impact of pets on health. And I had had a big stack of, of papers that 
that um, showed that pets, pets were good for people, that pet owners were better off. Um, but I had another stack of papers that I was unprepared for, which showed that there were no differences between pet owners and non-owners. And then I had mm. another stack of papers, wasn't quite as high, that showed that pet owners were worse off. Mm-hmm. And and so so it's there's a couple of problems with these claims that 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 you're going to be uh, healthier and happier if you get a you get a pet. First of all, is what I talked about with mixed results. Let's take for example depression. That that would be a good one, wouldn't it? Depression? Yeah, it's a good one. So that's okay, kind yeah. of the, the so, pneumonia of mental disorders. Ex- exactly. And so the pet industry says that people with pets are uh, less depressed than people that don't have pets. Well, I I located about uh, about about a month ago. I said I said all right, I'm gonna check out that claim. I located 30 at the time, now 32 papers in which they compared pet owners and non-owners and levels mm-hmm. of depression. And these were empirical you know, questionnaires and stuff like that. So it was, they had numbers. All these had numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of this 30 papers, five of them did find that pet owners were less likely to be depressed than non-pet owners. However, five of them found that pet owners were more likely to be depressed than non-pet owners. Than, than and then 20 papers found absolutely no difference. Hmm. And that's the pattern that we see. And, there, and there's other problems associated with this literature. One is cherry picking. A right. lot of these are epidemiological studies. They'll look at 50 variables. You know, they'll have weight variables. They'll have heart variables. They'll have, you know, how much do you drink variables, all this stuff. And they'll find maybe five variables where it looks like the pet owners are better off than the non-pet owners. Well, that's what they publish. And that's what gets in the newspaper. Right. Uh, and But a, a, a big problem is what I call the causal arrow problem. It is true that pet owners tend to be healthier psychologically and uh, physically than non-pet owners. Mm. Well, what I argue is that Mercedes-Benz owners are better <laughs> off psychologically and physically right. than non-Mercedes-Benz owners. But the reason it doesn't have anything to do with Mercedes-Benz, it's got to do they tend pet owners tend to be younger. Well. They tend there to be goes richer. our Mercedes-Benz. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they tend to be younger. They tend to be richer. They tend to be in better health to begin with. Um, they, t- they, they tend to have more education. There's racial differences in pet ownership. They're more likely to be, uh, you know, to be white, have the advantages mm-hmm. of, of being white. They're more likely to be educated. So, yeah, there's differences. They're better off. But it's not because it's not because of the pets. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's arrow the fact goes kind of perhaps the other it, direction. it goes the other direction. Happier, healthier people are more likely to have to have to have Find pets. A pet, right, they have the time and money, disposable yeah. income to give a pet a home, and to be like, oh, this would be a fun thing to have for us or the kids. Exactly, exactly. Right. And yeah. The same thing with claims about pets are being same same about the claim that pets are good for kids. Yeah, mm. yeah, they're good for kids. That's because kids that have pets come from family, yeah, intact families. They have lawns. They have all kind of benefits, you know. Right. I I thought it was really interesting that on your blog you had um, one about whether pet owners have lower suicide rates because that's an area of my research and you actually referenced the theory of my um, my graduate advisor Thomas Joyner uh, back when I was in graduate school yeah. and I I ran a study in my lab and it was kind of it was it was complicated looking at those same ideas, the idea that if you have a pet, you might feel more connected and like you belong more, you have more of a purpose and you contribute from that theory of suicide. And what we found is that it actually seemed like people who tended to be, have more anxious attachments could be Mm. worse off when they had animals. And so I, it might've been a selection effect similar to that too, but um, there, Either way, there wasn't a clear link like have a pet, good mental health benefits. And as a therapist, I get 
a fair number of requests for emotional support animals. And I often, which I don't, I don't think they care for, I often say I'm not really trained in evaluating that, but it's really because when I look at the literature, like you said, there's, it's, there's not a clear link between those things. And I could see, depending on the individual, it could be beneficial or it could not, but me putting in writing that it would definitely be beneficial. I'm reluctant to say that. I'm kind of skeptical in light of the evidence you kind of outlined there. Well, I, you know, it it is it is. I, I I've seen other studies that are, have reported the same thing that you're you're talking about as mm-hmm. well. And there are studies. Um, we'll we'll take for example. Uh, I'm recently been looking at loneliness, the impact mm-hmm. on loneliness because of people now getting pets, because of you know they're isolated and you know people are lonely now. And pet ownership, you know, not pet ownership, but pet adoptions are skyrocketing right now. People are stuck in their house and they want it and they want a pet. So I decided to look at the literature on pets and loneliness. And what I'm seeing, there, first of all, there's not as many studies as mm. there were on depression, but I was able to locate a, a half a dozen or so. And you see this, you see the same pattern. I, uh, a couple of them have found that pet owners are less lonely, but uh, most have found no differences. And then some of them have, have found that pet, pet owners are more likely to be lonely. lonely. And I actually think that it is quite possible that pet owners are more likely to be lonely. And I th- and my guess is that that, that, that relationship is going to become more robust yeah. because there's all these lonely people that are going out and getting a pet, you know, because, yeah. because they're lonely. So I, so it's not that pets are causing them to get lonely. It's that lonely people are, are going to, and See, here's the other, here's another thing that I find really interesting is that there's a, there's a, so Katie, you've got a new dog, right? Mm-hmm. Katie? Yeah. Yes. Do you yep, like your sorry. dog? Is, I do like does her. Does it make you feel less? <laughs> what kind of dog is it? She is a chocolate lab. She's a rescue dog, so I'm not sure, but she looks like a chocolate lab. Okay, you did the same. You did. You just did the thing that I that I did was telling. A, I, I tell a lot of people when I talk to people now and I ask them about their dog. Usually in the first two sentences, the word rescue comes up. You Two sentences. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yes. And I don't know if I, I hopefully I wasn't trying to signal my virtue, but more I, uh, trying, listen, trying to be precise about it. I'm not really this, sure if I, she's a lab. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. I hear this all the time. Come on, all the time. That's a new, okay. that's the new. The thing is, so my, my daughter, my daughter just got it, just got it, uh, a labradoodle. And oh, that, so that dog has made her life. She's so happier now. So, and, you know, I, I went walk with with uh, with a friend the other day with with his dog and we're walking up this, the hill and, you know, everybody's stuck indoors. This guy's living by himself because his wife is stuck up in Maryland or someplace and can't get back because of coronavirus. It's him and the dog. And there's no question in my mind that this dog makes his life better. The interesting thing is there's a mismatch between the psychology, what the, what the studies say and what our own eyes tell us. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one time, this is a, I think this is an important issue for psychology that transcends human animal interactions. I remember one time I was giving a talk in the Western Carolina, where we used to work, Leo, in the Western Carolina University uh, psychology department. And I was talking about the, the problems uh, with claims about the health benefits of pets and uh, whether they make people feel less depressed and lonely. And, uh, and one of our colleagues, Jamie Vasky, who's smarter than me, is probably smarter than you. She raised her hand and she said, uh, Hal, uh, do you think you can measure everything? <laughs> and it just caught me cold. And, you know, I, I learned then never to ask, never to call on her. You know, like she raises her hand. Yeah, because she was right. 
And I just wonder if some of the some of the things that I'm pointing out about the, the studies not showing what they, the pet companies say is actually because we don't have good measurement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely, because I while you were saying that, I was thinking as a therapist, when I am individually looking at that person and their situation, there's not even if people who you know, five people all have the diagnosis of depression, there could be very different things. Like if the dog is getting them out and they're exercising more, they're going to the dog park and socializing more versus they're not taking good care of the dog and then feel ashamed. There are just so many differences that it's not like dog equals feel better or feel worse. So I I totally agree with you. Yeah. and And I think the measures that we have, like most of these studies on loneliness, for example, use the same scale, the UCLA loneliness scale. And, I guess it's a good scale, but but there may be something going on there. I, I know that I know that in my heart, you know, I know that animals can make people feel less lonely, even though that the data may show otherwise. Even though the data doesn't show it as well as I would you, like to. Yeah, you know what? I because I, that brings to me in mind like the availability and representative biases, right? So we the data say one thing, but our personal experience, and that's easier for us to recollect. But but I'm wondering if there's a this kind of curvilinear relationship between happiness and loneliness or depression and, and pet ownership, and that you have people who are very happy and very well-adjusted who are going to get pets, and that's just going to enhance that happiness because they're already well-adjusted. But then, And then you're going to have the average person who's going to get the dog and is going to be, or cat or whatever, pet, and they're just averaging happiness. So the dog is going to enhance good times when the times are good, and it's going to get sad when you, if they step on the dog or he's a dog or bite somebody or you know something bad happens. But on average, it really doesn't make a big difference. And then on the other edge, you're going to have people who are terribly unhappy, depressed and or anxious and are trying to are going to get pets and use pets in the in the idea that they're going to have they're going to have a salutary effect in their lives. But in reality, because they already are so maladjusted, the the negative aspects of pet ownership just magnify those negative aspects of their own lives and it just becomes worse. In fact, in fact, the, the pet may be may, may be enabling. In fact, I can I know an example of that where the pet where the where, where the dog actually enables the the person to stay inside all the time, you know, right? And and and, and, and is, is an agent of isolation as opposed to socialization. Well, that, I think that's got, exactly I think you've got a publishable I, yeah. idea. Or they start hoarding them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's I that I think that is the concern too. Like clinically looking at is this again, what what is what are they gonna do with the dog matters a lot more than just whether they have one or not. So yeah, that's I, I think you're right. That's and I think that that kind of parallel in, in clinical research looking at therapy is talked about. That's why we need to do a lot more N equals one experiments, basically, kind of um designs where we mm-hmm. have an intervention you know, and take it away and kind of look to see yeah. what affects that person because the kind of general surveys don't reflect exactly what we're trying to get at. Well, this actually comes up with the suicide. What I what mm-hmm. I argued where I, what I argued in that blog that you saw was I, I found a couple papers in which uh, they looked at pet ownership amongst people that killed themselves and people you know mm-hmm. they didn't and, and they and they didn't find that there was any relationship. On the other hand, the journal Anthozoos just published a, a qualitative study. Uh, in which they interviewed people about uh, did pets help them get through a time in their life and help prevent them from com- mm-hmm. you know, committing suicide. Oh. And um, the qualitative data was very de- interesting. It was 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 played a different story. And people did say say yeah, you know, I like you know, I didn't kill myself because nobody was there to take take care of my dogs. And and when I wrote that blog, I actually got mails from people 
And, mm. uh, you know, mail from people that said that their dogs had was really critical in their decision not to kill themselves. And so I, there, again, I definitely there's a mismatch hear between, there's a mis, Yeah, but there's a mismatch between the qualitative results and then the, the quantitative results. Well, so that, I think, and that's my problem with qualitative research. I know. <laughs> because, <laughs> I know. Because then you just have the, they're basically they're like, oh, so this is quantifiable anecdotes. Brilliant. Right. Oh, crap. Here comes, here comes the, here comes the hate mail from the hate <laughs> psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to put it together because nobody's going to leave a suicide note saying it was the dog that did it. No, but <laughs> I do. Over the edge. I do hear people say, and again, we don't know because they're, I mean, this is the, one of the issues with psychology is it's so complex, but people will say like, there's no one to take care of my dog. And that is one thing right. that I think about that. And, and I think it matters if they're saying that at least that's their perception. And it means yes. Something, you know, that's right. That, yeah. that's, that, but that's exactly correct. But that is the problem. And what we see. So, for example, um, you know, uh, you know, Leo called me a Grinch. And some of my colleagues say that I'm a curmudgeon. It, it is true that I have a, a generally a skeptical bent. And when I look at a study, you know, you've got to you've got to convince me, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 that, and that's and that, I'm like that. And and and. This is what I think makes me different than some uh, um, most of the people in my field. I was drawn to the field because I'm interested in human-animal relationships as a window into human psychology. Most people in the field get into the field because they're they love pets, they're animal lovers, mm-hmm. and so they want to find that um, you know pets are good for people. If everybody had a pet, the world would be a better place. And animal-assisted therapy works and stuff like that. And so a lot of times I'll see I'll see I'll see papers where the data clearly shows there was no effect, but yet they'll do they'll add a qualitative component right. on it, you know, and they'll say, well, we <laughs> we also asked the little kids, you know, the, the classic example is it was, it was a sad a sad study on uh, the effect of therapy dogs on kids yeah. with uh, it was a randomized control with kids with with childhood leukemia, oh. and the study cost a million dollars, took uh, five or six years to complete, it, had, it was a really great design. And it was zero done in five, five major medical center. They oh, found wow. zero zero impact oh, of wow. the the, yep. the, uh, the therapy dogs on the kids. But what? But the press didn't. The press did didn't. The, 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 the press did not report that. What the press reported was how much the kids loved the dogs and how much they <laughs> said that. Yet, you know, Johnny, do you think the, that the dog really helps you deal with you know your your stuff? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we oh, really love the dogs. <laughs> and so yeah, I see a lot of papers where where if you actually look at the numbers. And I mm-hmm. actually graph them out sometime and write the articles. And, I mean, write the authors and say, I don't understand how you got this, this significant difference seeing that this group had uh, you know, 22.2 for a score and the other group had uh, 22.3. <laughs> and they delete your email right away. You never hear back <laughs> from them. So and actually reminds me of another blog post that you had related to that is because we I think we also been, think about animals and like, Oh, what can animals do for us? But I know that there's a a, a brand of New York anthropology, and I think Lori Marino is that her name? Yeah, Lori Marino. Yeah, and I think I think I've I've seen a couple of her papers, but and a couple of other people who are making the case essentially. And you wrote a blog essentially like do do animal assisted therapy pets need animal assisted therapy pets or something along those lines? And it's that we have this kind of very anthropocentric view of what animals should do for us. And some anthrozoologists and other people who look at the ethics of it say, you know, what is the effect that is happening? You know, what is living in captivity and what is them serving us all the time doing to them? Um, so do you, do you have any, any, any thoughts on that area? 
Yeah, yeah, it, raise, it does raise a, a real can can of worms. Uh, yeah, this is well. Let's take the extreme example: uh, dolphin therapy. Yeah. And uh, dolphin therapy is uh, is still a thing, which to my surprise. Yeah. Um, and so, let's see, Katie, you volunteered to be a therapist, right? Yes. You wanted to be a therapist. Exactly. Well, that dolphin swimming around that concrete pond for his whole life, nobody asked him if it wanted to be no. a therapist. Nobody wanted to, nobody, nobody asked him if it wanted to, you know, you know hang out with autistic kids and, right. and uh, your kids with autism or, you know, you know, middle-aged guys that are depressed or do stuff like that. And, and the gig is up, Katie, you got a, you got a free clip or two. <laughs> so the, with, with dolphin-assisted therapy, you have a couple problems. One is that there's no good evidence that it actually works. Um, two, it just it really does raise these issues. What, and the, to me, the interesting question is, what if it did work? Mm-hmm. You know, what if it did work? Would that give us the right to take these creatures, you know, you know, with these enormous brains and with this clear sense of autonomy and and all this stuff, and you know, make them basically our slaves because we want to it might make a small difference in the life of a hyperactive child, which of course there's no evidence that it actually does. Huh. That, that actually, that reminds, it kind of reminds me of the last, almost the last line on the tiger King. Do you remember Katie? We talked a little bit about it last time. He's talking about the two chimpanzees that he had in captivity. And he very pointedly kind of just says, you know, did I keep him from being free and with each other? And he says, yep. Uh, And, and we do that. So, you know, many people can shake their finger at Joe, uh, Joe Exotic and all that. But the reality is that we, as a government, right, are, we keep chimps in labs all around in facilities because and great apes um, and other, um, you know, monk, or newborn monkeys that are also close to us that have fairly complex emotional and mental lives because they serve a purpose for us. Uh, and there's, you know, this, it brings to that question. It's like, are we doing something to, even though, even though they may serve a purpose to us, is that the moral ethical thing to do? Right. Now, they are phasing chimpanzee research out, at least in the United States. But let's take that one step further. Mm. And let's talk about the same issue, essentially, but in the context of the animals that we live with, as opposed to animals. And let's say, let's say, and I've, I've, I, I think increasingly what we're doing there's been changing attitudes towards towards pets in the united states and western world generally mm. uh, and particularly dogs so when people when we say pets now mostly we're thinking about dogs um and more and more we're, we're we've got this phenomenon that the pet industry is encouraging the humanization of pets and they're encouraging it in part because people buy more money you know mm. uh, people buy more expensive stuff more you know if they think it you know, you right. our pets Pet are insurance. like us. They're gonna, they're gonna buy. You know, we're gonna buy insurance. We're gonna buy, you know, better, better, better food. They're gonna buy clothes for them. We're gonna send them to the day spas and all that stuff. And so, and so, uh, Greg Burns, a uh, neuroscientist from Emory, uh, studies uh, the MRI responses of uh, of dogs in uh, in his in his lab in Emory. And what, what he he had a piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and the headline was "Dogs Are People Too." And that really got me to thinking, Mm. well, if dogs are people, too, if we're really thinking them as autonomous creatures that have a mind, that have a will, that want to do stuff, do we really have them a right to keep them as slaves in our house because we think it's fun to have them around? Right. And 
I'm concluded that may, maybe the answer is no. Like if if, if 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 your dog was really your friend or if your dog was your kid or your dog was your a real family member, you wouldn't cut its balls off because you didn't want it to have a sex life. You know, you wouldn't you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't make him eat the same dreary kibble every meal. And every time it goes outside, um, have to be on a leash. Or take them to obedience school. Of course, you might want to take your kid to obedience school, right? <laughs> <laughs> you might take them to obedience school. We might take them to obedience school, but not on a leash. That'll, you that'll leave with child you, services. You, you, you certainly wouldn't. What we've done with dogs is we is we bred them far deformities, far intentionally bred them for deformities, which mm-hmm. caused them to suffer. So if dogs were people too, we wouldn't allow the intentional breeding of, let's say, people so that they always look like little kids, you know? Mm-hmm. So to, to me, this, that's really the paradox of the personalization, the humanization of pets is that the more we humanize them, the more it's unethical for us to keep them as pets. <laughs> Boy, Katie, you really you chose the wrong time. I'm not going to be back on your blog, am I? I'm really <laughs> rethinking things now and starting uh, to feel uncomfortable with my choices. <laughs> your choice of blog guests. <laughs> no, no, I've been enjoying this a great deal. I, I actually, I think. I mean, I just think this, it's fascinating because most of us have had direct experience with pets and animals. Then, you know, I think thinking about through the mental health stuff is so interesting. It's just amazing to me how broad you've gone with your research and your interest to understand so much about that. I mean, in looking at some of the other things that you've done, I mean, you, you talk a bit about animal cruelty as a possible red flag for later adult violence. And I was curious about that because yeah, we, we that came up a little with Tiger time. King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Katie. I got excited there. Please. <laughs> <laughs> We're both so excited. It's, yes. No, I, um, you know, so I think that one thing Leo and I were talking about with Tiger King is that they show early on this affection towards the animals, but then later can be very cruel to the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what do you have to say about that idea that kind of childhood animal cruelty is linked to later adult violence? Um, people love that. People love that idea. It just turns out to be um, that, that, in fact, there's a term, uh, the American Humane Association has has copyrighted the term the link. And so uh, in the anthropology really? circle, yes, they did. I called them wow. one time and I said, all right, all right, you copyrighted that term. What is that? Does that mean I have to put a little copyright symbol every time I use that in my book? You no, know? <laughs> and they, they did not even know what it meant. I talked to their lawyer. I said, what does it mean you copyrighted that term, the link? And they, huh. they, they, they weren't sure. But the, the fact is that studies after study after study has shown that if you look at uh, this, is, this isn't very nice, but it just happens to be true. Um, a substantial number of children uh, are cruel to animals when they're kids. Typically, studies of college students, when you ask college students, uh, were were you ever cruel to an animal, intentionally cruel to an animal when you were a child? Usually about 30% of males and a considerably smaller number of females say yes. Well, if you go to prisons and you ask violent criminals, um, were you ever violent, were you ever violent to an animal when you were a kid? A slightly larger number say that, but not a very big number. And most criminals don't do that. Most school shooters did not do not have a history of animal cruelty. Uh, most mass murderers do not have a history of animal cruelty. Um, that's just a simple fact. Uh, animal abuse, uh, animal childhood animal cruelty would be a terrible red flag 
um, because you would be wrong almost all the time. If you were, if you were to if you were to uh, pick a kid because of some instance of animal cruelty when they were a kid, and you were to identify that kid as having psychological problems and then sending him to a psychologist because of, of problems, based on that alone, I would say that's one of the worst things you could have done with that kid because mm. now he's got a label, now he's on a registry. And, um, right. Because, uh, yeah, they were thinking about creating a registry for people who who had uh, like animal cruelty and maybe for adults, maybe a different story. Might be a but, different yeah, story. for children, it would be it'd be tough because there's a huge amount of uh, false positive, uh, false, yeah, false negative or po- tr- true negative basically versus false positives. Yeah. Like, and like animal cru- animal. There are some things that are better red flags, but even those are not like, if you, like animal cruelty is, is a less accurate red flag than things like uh, depression, uh, mm-hmm. listening to heavy metal music, um, be having an interest oh, in gun, having an interest in guns yeah, and, vid- sure. and video games. All those all all those are more predictive of uh, of adult violence than animal cruelty is. Yeah, and the, and some of those are not like the video games are not even that that good predictive anyway. So that's exactly right. They're yeah. not that they're not that predictive anyway. Yeah, that's really it's interesting because it made me think about also we touched a little bit on on the last podcast and wanted to ask you about when we talked about the animal cruelty thing and I said that probably a lot of the and I don't know if you have a sense on the the percentage or the number of cases of animal cruelty in the U.S. But I thought that maybe a lot of those animal cruelty cases are probably people who um, actually really do love their animals and kind of like um, Joe Exotic and them, but end up having too many of them for, you know, fi- whatever fill in the blank reason. And they end up hoarding animals and they, yeah. you know, they will say up and down they love their animals, but they are engaging in cruelty because they have terrible conditions. Yeah, um, that's a re- that's a really interesting phenomenon. Um my re- my recollection, I think I saw a statistic recently that that I think said something like a hundred thousand cases in the United States estimated a year. But I, that may be. I'm not. I don't 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 hold no me quote. to that. Yeah, don't 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 quote me on that one. Yeah, it's it that yeah that's a really interesting phenomenon. And um, most psychological theories link it to sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. Um. But one thing that does seem to be the case, at least the studies that I've seen, is that it's very difficult to treat. And uh, it's almost like once you're a hoarder, an animal hoarder, always an animal hoarder. It's it's really hmm. difficult to to, uh, to to extinguish that behavior. And and that does that appear to be kind of a culturally bound phenomenon too, where it doesn't happen in every culture? <laughs> it's 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 one of the interestingly enough most. Almost all forms of animal cruelty are uh, there's, there's a huge gender difference. And, mm. You know, if you look at if you look at you know uh, convictions for wanton animal cruelty, you know, shooting, beating, stabbing, stuff like that, 95% male. Yeah. The cruelty associated with hoarding isn't can be worse because it can go on for years. I've been in people's homes, and you know, there's it's just horrible the, the environment yeah. that these animals are living in. So it's not just cru- a, an event, you know, shooting the dog. It's keeping these animals in terrible conditions for months or years, and that's 75 or 80 percent women. So it's it's it's, it's really mm. interesting. In, ter- in terms of culture, I don't know. Most things have a cultural link. Um, I, I I don't know of any of any particular studies. Any st- studies have looked at culture other than that that big gender difference. 
That so yeah, that's a really interesting. So kind of more the uh, Frank out kind of externalizing disorders, mm-hmm. uh, cruelty to animals, just kind of to be cruel to be cruel. Tends to be more yep. of a male dominated field versus yep. animal hoarding because you want to keep them and have yep. them and love them and but you cannot do it. It tends to be more of a uh, of a female and perhaps maybe the relationship between and Katie, you probably can talk more about this, but the relationship between depression and anxiety and internalizing disorders and externalizing disorders, the, the rates are almost two to one yeah. for so gender. two to one for a, a gender, the, the yeah. gender, the gender disparity. Let me say something else about that. Yeah. And the, the whole question of what the definition of cruelty is. And mm. so, for example, the United States just puts a little, they, they tweaked, oh gosh, I've forgotten what act it was, but it but basically it was making animal cruelty a felony throughout the United States, but this, the, the implication was of this act. However, it specifically exempted hunting. Right. And if you look, if you look at the number of animals, like, you know, I don't have a, I don't take a big moral stances on these things, you know, and, I, mm. and I'm not a hunter. But if you were to look at the number of animals that are injured or hurt, intentionally injured or hurt, Hunting is by far the biggest cause. And, mm. you know, to me, like if, if you if you're if you know, if you happen to hit a deer or turkey or whatever and you get it right and they fall over dead, mm. you know, I got no problem with that. But that doesn't always happen. And in, in some cases, depending on the animal and stuff like that, a third of the animals are wounded and not killed outright. Right. And so but we hold hunting is is a is an American value. When Obama was president, he declared like some like October first or you know, you know take a take a kid hunting and oh, fishing months. Right. Yeah. yeah, and um, uh, so on the one hand, we think of you know circuses being cruel, Joe Tigers being cruel and stuff like that. But on the other hand, we have forms of cruelty that we not only sanction, but we absolutely uh, uh, we, we not only justify, but we actually hold hold the high in, in, in high in high esteem. There's so there's, there's a, yeah. there's a it, it really gets to a phenomenon that we see in almost all of our interactions with the animals. And it's really the major theme of a lot of my work and my book, which is how we deal with moral complexity. And mm-hmm. I don't like to use the word hypocrisy, but oftentimes it boils down to that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a very like I said, you can, you know, pet a baby deer, but then, you know, <laughs> kill his mother and then uh, have her for dinner. But I, I guess I would say for, I've been kind of puttering around some of the hunting um, kind of lizards and stuff because I've, I've started to get to the point that I'm like, if I'm going to eat meat, then it'll have to be I would I, I want to know where it's coming from. Then yeah. I would be, it would be good for me to know where it comes from. I would know a better way to hunt. I will say Is that, that I will a hunt. Portland effect, because I feel <laughs> like that's a very Portlandia thing where they trace back to like where the food came from. It's a very specific. That's exactly it. right. That's exactly right. And that's how I that's how I signal my virtue. and and uh, that's the west coast version of that and uh, but yeah it's kind of like and also i just think about the environmental effect you know the kind of probably the reasons that you're a vegetarian kitty as well or that i've heard you talk about it is that you know uh, the meat industry has a a huge environmental impact so in order to do something about it i would say that a lot of the 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 hunters and the looking at the bow hunting um community that's one of the concerns that they have is that they want to make sure that you do not maim if you're going to go hunting you better be proficient and you've got to make sure you're not going to go out there and maim an animal make him suffer you're trying to minimize the amount of suffering that an animal has uh when you're harvesting that the term is you know harvesting the (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) 
Okay, okay, Leo. Let me. Yes. We're not going to have this discussion, but but if if I were to come back in the next life and I had a choice between having a deer yeah. that you shoot me in the head and I kill over dead and the lights go out because you want to eat me, or yeah. if I were going to be a a cow that I'm going to be raised on some miserable, you know you know, feed lot yeah. for the rest of my life and then and then go to a slaughterhouse yeah. where I'm going to be pulled upside take? down and my throat cut. I'd much, I'd much rather be the deer. Yeah. However, <laughs> however, let's I think let's do this. Let's this, let's, let's do this on another show sometime. We'll, we'll, okay. do, we'll deal with the psychological complexity of our moral relationships with animals. I, I love it. Uh, that, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a good one. Do you I want don't to... like to be challenged, though, in my behaviors and my worldview. <laughs> so it's very difficult for me. <laughs> okay. I like to just think there are simple answers. So They're you simple. must have a high tolerance for ambiguity. <laughs> All this grace. <laughs> I'd rather have yeah. just moral certainty. Well, you know, I I it's. Something that I thought was interesting is that um, you mentioned kind of looking at moral consistency, this idea of meat eating vegetarians, which I've never heard before. What? Yeah. Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? <laughs> they are most vegetarians. Oh. In fact, in fact, in fact, studies have shown, I don't mean little studies, how many studies conducted by the United States government have shown that roughly 60 percent of vegetarians, if you ask them what you had for dinner the previous day. It will have some form of animal flesh in it. Sixty oh percent. Furthermore, <laughs> good. No, let's, ta- let's, my, take, let's, let's take our PD. former let's take our former president Bill Clinton, who be, who is a vegan. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing an interview with Bill, with, with Bill Clinton, and he was yeah. talking about extolling his veganism, how much he had lost weight, I was feeling better than he had for years and years and years, and so on. And then he slipped in. Well, I have a little salmon every Friday, <laughs> with no. And no furthermore, <laughs> there's a there's a young researcher at UCLA that's been doing he's been doing some marvelous research, and he and he and he was puzzled by this idea of how many vegetarians ate fish that are actually pescatarians, and he did a study where he asked uh, fish eating vegetarians whether they can whether they considered fish to be made out of meat, and forty percent said no. <laughs> Oh my gosh! 40% oh. said fish were not made out of meat. What? <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do have a couple of colleagues that did say they, they say, "Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm a vegetarian." And then quickly thereafter, "Well, I do eat fish." And I'm like, "What are you? Okay, right?" Well, this, these are the limitations of self-report and qualitative interviews and self-identification <laughs> because clearly people don't have the categories quite right. I, are you kind of just to backtrack? I wanted to make you one of the. Um, these are people kind of getting pets and having all of a sudden and you mentioned briefly about people currently during the the coronavirus uh, maybe getting more pets. So what do you think there's going to be like so there's all these kind of feel good stories about people going to get pets from the shelters in order to kind of just feel less lonely. Do you think we're going to see what do you think is going to be the long term effect of um, all these people kind of going to get pets on a, on a bit of an in a, in a, in a bit of an impulse and a bit of an emotional regulation? Uh, impulse to go kind of just feel less lonely or just because we're at home and then go get a pet. Is there any precedence or any data in the past that people have been like, they go get a pet because of a movie? And you talked about, you know, pet ownership as a meme. You've written about the popularity of different pets because of uh, a movie or something and then the effects of that. Do you see some of that maybe occurring in this particular, uh, this particular time of history? 
with the coronavirus. Yeah, so. I, yeah I, I don't really have a good answer for that. I, I think one thing that's possible is that people are going to, you know, people are going to get these. Well, well what, this, this is a t- this is one, one of the things that we don't know very much about, surprisingly, is people that don't like pets, the people that don't like including mm. the, the animals that they live with. And I remember I started asking uh, my classes, I'd say, like, how many of you how many of you uh, does somebody in your family not like or is afraid of the family pet? And usually about a third of the hands would usually about a third of the hands would go up. And. I, I think there's a couple things that could happen. One is that people could fall in love with these animals and it becomes a lifetime bond and it's absolutely terrific for them. But it's also possible what will happen is what happens when people get pets because they think their kid wants a pet, you know, that their kid needs to be, have a dog. And um, oftentimes the, you know, the, 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 the kid will sort of be bonded for the dog with the wild, but wild. But what we know now from a number of studies is that when kids get to be about 11 or 12 years old, they sort of lose their connection with the with the, with those with those dogs. Mm. And, you know, and I, I asked my grandson about that one time. You know, he's nine. I said, well, what, what do you think is going on with that? And he said, well, they, they, they've got phones. They've got their iPhones now. <laughs> oh, you know? That's true. And so they're doing other things. And then so the pets there with the with the family and oftentimes, the you know, the the, the grown ups, the mom and dad aren't that, aren't that attached to the animal. And then once the animal leaves, they, they don't get a they don't get a pet again. So, you know, I, I think I think it's possible that that these will sort of these bonds will not be long lasting. The other thing I think I think is, is possible is that, you know, now they're at home with their pet. Their pets there all the time. Like Katie spending all, all day with her with her dog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point, you know, you have a plan. You're going to come home and, and you know, hang out with your with your dog you know, for lunch. But at some point, hopefully this is going to be over and people are going to go back to work and they're going to go back to their friends and they're going to go back to their life. And my guess is it's, in some oh, cases no. for, for these dogs, it's going to be a rude awakening. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that's what happened. That's what happens when when uh, when people. In fact, my, when my wife and I, uh, you know, uh, you know, were first married, we had a, we had a dog that we were just absolutely loved it. We, we, we did all those things that. You know, dog. You know, childless dog owners do. You know, we took her everywhere and all that stuff, and just loved her. And then we our kid came her. along, and and then she, and then and then Molly sort of was back <laughs> to being the, a dog. <laughs> down the evolutionary scale, yeah. she went again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I I don't know. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. It would be that. Honestly, that'd be a good a good amount of data to see. Uh, if so. shelter, yeah, because the shelters, yeah, the shelters, be, you know, like shelters, like oh, this is great. Everybody's taking animals; it's fantastic. And all of a sudden, it's a golden age. Mm-hmm. And then in six months, here come the puppies back. Come yeah. the puppies back, right? That's right. I I don't know if that's true. I think that happens around holidays and stuff like that. At least I've heard that anecdotally. So for something like this, I imagine it would follow that same pattern. Uh, yeah, it'll be, inter- it'll be interesting to see, and there will there will be a lot of data on that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Do you want to? I think we covered everything. The only thing we haven't covered. Do you want to do like a like a rapid fire round uh, of a few questions? Why not? Why not? <laughs> what, do you, what do you What do you think, Katie? Uh, yeah, have? I've got two things left. One from Twitter and one that I just am very interested want to hear about. I um, talking about moral inconsistency. You mentioned that there are some. Um, something about the Nazi animal protection yeah. movement. You mind telling us about that? Yeah, and I've heard that, that a lot about on the internet. There's always memes and things about that. So yeah, it'd be interesting to hear about. 
Yeah, to me, to me, it's one of the most amazing of the moral inconsistencies. You know, I talk about cockfighters as when good people do bad mm. things, mm. and I talk about when I talk about Nazi animal. Without talking about Hitler, I say, well, you know, sometimes <laughs> bad people can do good things. Yeah. And Hitler uh, was the leader of the of the of the bunch, and he was a huh. vegetarian, although he wasn't a complete vegetarian. And I sometimes you know, well, right would say that he wasn't really a vegetarian, but he was mostly a vegetarian. Um, uh, I think it was Himmler. I think it was Himmler that said that he would condemn to a concentration camp anybody who was cruel to an animal. Oh. Um, uh, oh. The Nazi, the uh, German, the the uh, the animal protection laws that the Germans put in place in 1938 and 1939 were the most progressive animal uh, mm. protection legislation in the, in the world. Uh, they protected uh, animals being used in movies. They banned hunting with dogs. They had uh, really strict regulations of animal for animal research. And here's the interesting thing. They developed the world's first humane slaughter act. And then in 1932, they banned Jews from owning pets. Oh, my God. And so the Jews had to, the Jews had to turn in their dogs and cats oh, to get geez. slaughtered. But the, Jew, the, the dogs and cats of the Jews were slaughtered under humanely oh under under the rule under under the under the nazi animal humane slaughter act at the same time the jews themselves were being put into concentration camps were not covered by the same wow there's so many levels of just there's so much in that i still can't wrap my head around exactly but you cannot those a lot of laws are still on the books that's a, a whole level of just oh yeah crazy wow okay wow no, I, I speechless, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, that, the whole about uh, that's horrifying. You know, yeah. Without a hint of any, yeah, well, whatever. It just, I guess, it kind of just basically it's emblematic of what uh, the Nazi regime was like and their views upon, you know. Right, but, it, but it's also it's also emblematic of these inconsistencies that we have. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 idea right. that we killed, uh, you know, what we do to the the way that we treat the 10 billion chickens that we right. that we eat, you know, and and you know, to, you know, to me that's emblematic of not the Nazis, but in some ways we're all guilty. Not all of us, you know, not people that take these these issues seriously. Um, you know, they become vegetarians that really try and live their life without cruelty. But most of us just don't think about it. Hey, actually, I've never, this is a question for Katie, because I think I've heard the, the question before. You, When did you decide to become a vegetarian and how long have you been uh, a vegetarian? It's been about 20 years. And I read um, a book by the person, uh, Diet for New America, by mm-hmm. the person who was to inherit the Baskin Robbins dairy kind of mm, right. uh, and and it's uh was a combination of health environment and other types of things and then i you know i maybe shouldn't admit this because it doesn't it makes it sound like it's not that hard i i don't have any taste for meat anymore so i don't right. th- i don't feel like um i don't know i just like the thought of it um I, i'm so used to it by now that it's it's been such a long period of time um so but i don't I don't feel like I know there's that stereotype of vegetarians and vegans that are kind of um, judgmental about what other people do. And I don't I don't unless I'm very not self-aware, which is totally (laughs) be the case. I don't don't really feel that way. It just felt like something I could do that might have some impact and has been fine. So, yeah. That's it because yeah, I'm I'm kind of a little bit that's so why I, I I buy the environmental arguments I I think it's important that I can I mean there it would be 
foolhardy to be like, oh, it has no impact. It does. And I definitely have seen the videos of the way the animals are treated in slaughterhouses. And so I try to kind of limit my, but I, I do a fair amount of mental gymnastics in order to, because, but I, but I think it's because I actually do like the taste and everything about meat is very, it's just tasty and good for me. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, Petri dish meat and see how that Oh, me too. Out. Yeah. Me too. No, I'm, I'm all for it. And see, I, I don't go through these mental gyrations. I, I freely admit that if I were a better person, I would be a vegetarian. <laughs> and, I, and, and, I never, and, I, and I never get in debates with vegetarians because their arguments are correct. They win every time. My only justification for eating animals is they taste good. <laughs> I don't bother so with mental gyrations. <laughs> have you had the Impossible Whopper? It's pretty good, actually. I have, and I thought, um, I, in fact, when the when Impossible Whopper came out, I went to my local my local Burger King, and I ordered it, and they said it wasn't in yet, so I ordered a regular one, and, <laughs> and it was it was terrible. It was and <laughs> so then I went back a week later, and I had the Impossible one. And it was also terrible, but it was, it was not nearly as terrible as the one I had had the, the previous week. So I thought it was definitely, I was disappointed in it, but I thought it was better than the one that was what actually was, made out of a piece, it, piece of cow. The best from what it's supposed to replace. Yeah. So a step forward for Burger King. But I'm with Leo. I'm really looking forward to yeah. uh, fake meat. If it tastes good, I'm in. I don't have to deal with this generation. And I've, I've also had the Impossible Burger at a place, uh, and I've had it in the store, and it's not quite as good. It just tastes like that. Kind of, but it is kind of amazing how close it's starting to get to to the yeah. to the actual thing. Yeah. yeah. Something that are very good. Well, it's, it's interesting. that I, 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 I was, I was uh, talking to a class at uh, at, at uh, University of New England, mm. and the um, person that was the, uh, the faculty member in the class is a vegan. And we got into an argument about the ethics of uh, lab-grown meat. Uh-huh. And the funny thing was I was all for it, and she was opposed to it. Huh. And it was real interesting that there's a lot of reactions against uh, against some segments of the vegan vegan uh, culture in the United States that are very opposed to lab-grown meat. Oh, that's, why, why is that? Yeah, they just think know. we shouldn't have it as part of our diet or something? Well, she she said, well, it's cruel. The research going into it is cruel that they use something about cow uteruses or something like that. Uh, but I, but to me, like, I think it was that the idea of disgust, there was just a level of disgust about meat mm-hmm. generally. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that would be the case. Yeah. Yeah. To me, to me, if you could save a billion, ten billion animals a year in the United States alone yeah. by by you know sacrificing a few cows. Then that's why a not? no-brainer. You know, yeah, right? yeah, it's no, it's no time for. I mean, I think that's kind of what uh, veganism is sometimes like accused mm. of being so having so much purity test that you like mm. actually miss good opportunities to reduce right. harm. Yeah. Of, of the main goal. But any vegans listening, I don't feel that way about you. I'm just saying I have heard that stereotype. <laughs> but but we don't believe but it. The, but but no. the, if if you know the, the, there's a there's a, a substantial amount of research now. There, there's there's Research, there's a number of social psychologists, economists, philosophers that have gotten together mm-hmm. and they're and they basically are saying, what can we do to reduce animal suffering? And they, right. they concluded that the biggest thing you can do is reduce the consumption of animals. And For what's sure. the best way to do it? Well, it turns out the best way to do it is not to convince people to go vegan or go vegetarian because right. most people can't do it. And the people that do almost. 90, no, 80% of them go back to eating meat. What right. you can do is you can get people to reduce their amount of yeah. meat that they eat. 
And yeah. so there's now a movement, and some of the leaders of the movement are in Portland, by the way. Yeah, um, of course. That um, and the reducitarian movement, if you look mm-hmm. at the mathematics and also the social psychology of behavior change, you can save millions and millions and millions of animals by getting people to, to eat meat one less meal a, a week, you know? Yeah. Which is sure. doable. Yeah, that, you know? that is, a, yeah, you have tofu or tempeh one. Instead of an animal product and that, yeah. it'll make it'll make it an, on aggregate, it would make an enormous make an enormous difference. Enormous the, difference. The, the, the biggest failure of the animal protection movement is the they have made almost not, they have not made a dent in the amount of the per capita consumption of meat in the United States. Mm. So, yeah, so maybe this would be a better approach. Yeah, it's a better approach. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the la- the last thing that probably that I would ask because I've heard you kind of mention a little bit, but what is your opinion regarding so go tying it back to the Joe Joe Exotic and the thing. So what is your opinion on not necessarily Joe's per se, but just in general animal preserves and because I, I when I find myself watching the show, I could see that kind of pragmatic approach is like there's there there are animals that are these are uh, endangered right. And I can see how it's being used as an excuse, perhaps, to keep them in captivity. But at the same time, are these animal preserves or zoos or private zoos or however you want to name them uh, actually contributing to the biodiversity of the species that are disappearing in the wild? Like, where do you land on this and on the, the, the moral complexities of the of keeping yeah. animals in captivity, especially endangered ones? Where do you, where do you land? I, I don't land anywhere on that. I, that's not that's mm-hmm. not an area that I that I really dealt with. Um, the closest I've dealt with that, and so I don't really have a, you know, we did, you know, we did a study one time on on zoos and um, uh, and what what types of things that people told, you know, parents told their kids when they were at zoos and things like that, but it, it didn't yeah. reveal very much. One of the things, one of the most interesting studies that I did, which I never published, however, was on circus animal trainers. Mm. And I did, and I did interview uh, a number of tiger trainers, lion tamer trainers, uh, people that dealt with elephants and stuff like that. And these were all uh, people that were animal trainers in small, small circuses. They were not. I, I interviewed one Ringling Brothers person, but for the most part, they were small. Mm. And they were not all like Joe. Joe. Mm. Exotic. Uh, exotic. They were not at all like him. These people d- deeply, they were sort of like these rooster fighters in a way, mm. in that they really love, rooster fighters have enormous respect for roosters. Mm. It's one of the hardest things to, to wrap your head around. Yeah. And these circus animals were the same way. I, I, they, they knew, you know, I've got a PhD in animal behavior. They knew so much more about animals than anybody I ever met that had a PhD in animal behavior. You know, if your life depends on going into a, a uh, cage of tigers, you gotta you gotta have it together and you gotta know what's going on. In fact, one of the, mm-hmm. the people that I interviewed, one of the nicest ones, was actually killed in the ring in front of a bunch oh. of school kids. Nice. Yeah, after nice. I interviewed him. Yeah. yeah. And so it it was that group that made me realize that there was some level of human interactions with the animals that I just was almost incapable of understanding. Yeah. And I have I have 200 pages of interviews with circus animal trainers. And when I was writing my book, they wanted uh-huh. me to include include a chapter on that, and I and I didn't do it. I talked them out of it, and I just I just didn't think that I uh, understood them well enough to do that and uh, to do a good job on their on their moral complexity and the psychological complexity of their worlds. Wow. It was it was their relations with animals were so intense. Um, yeah. Oftentimes it involved the themes there were love and death. 
And mm. it was it was the deepest relationships I've ever seen. And I, I did I did not see that in the in you know Joe Exotic and those guys those I did I did not see mm. the uh, the level of responsibility and uh, passion for animals that I saw in the circus animal trainers that I that I interviewed, which I I, I just had a, I, a lot of respect for them. And I, yeah. I, I I'm, I'm you know they're 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 going out of business. They're you know they're they're they they knew that they had a they were the last of a dying breed, and I really don't think we can justify keeping animals in circuses anymore. And your average animal act in a circus lasts seven minutes, and it's just not mm. worth it. Mm. But the relationships that these people had with animals was extremely deep and, and profound. Interesting. Yeah, I think actually I think that's a that's a perfect perfect way to end. I, think I have I'm, one other think, question. Yeah, please. Last time, but if you don't, no problem. I was just going to ask, this is from um, at Paul R. Connor from Twitter who asked about um, toxoplasmosis oh, yeah. <laughs> and oh. can cats the make cats. people mentally ill? Um, that's, that's a really interesting question. I, I became absolutely fascinated by this question. And I, you know, 10 years ago, when I was writing a book. I actually wrote a whole section that got cut out of the book on mm. it and uh the answer is in theory yes the uh most toxoplasmos toxoplasmosis is a uh, a nasty little bug mm. that can uh that can wind up in the brain and what it can it can rewire the brain for example in rats and mice it can rewire their brain so that the rats and mice come to like the smell of cat pee Mm-hmm. And they're then attracted to it, and then the, the the cat will eat the mouse and help the toxoplasmosis germ reproduce itself, the parasite reproduce itself. Mm-hmm. And this has been linked to a toxoplasmosis has been linked to a wide variety of uh, human psychological disorders, schizophrenia, uh, depression, uh, driving accidents, all mm-hmm. kinds of things like that. But the liter the 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 literature is really mixed on it. And uh, one of the strongest studies I saw was a study done at Duke, and they looked at the, uh, uh, the relationship between toxoplasmosis and schizophrenia, and they didn't find anything. Oh. So I think most people that get toxoplasmosis get it from eating meat. Uh, they don't get it from cats, but you mm. can get it from handling cat feces, but so there, there's some there's something going on there, but the, the the research is so mixed right now that I'm not I'm not sure what to make of it. Thank you for yeah. answering that. You've just you have answered the wide range of questions we've asked. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I think what you yeah, did was great. great. Take out the dumb stuff. Right. Take out the stuff that that, um, that I shouldn't have said. <laughs> <laughs>